0: It's good to see you. How are you keeping?
1: I'm good. I'm very good, actually. To be honest, yeah, very good, energized, um, recharged. It's a good time, in in a sense, in a sense.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And um, how's the UK? How's um, everything um, going there?
1: Um, I mean, you know, some dimensions positive, some dimensions, you know, challenging. I know that we've had quite a few people who've, you know been diagnosed with um, coronavirus and a few have passed away as well but I think at the same time there's a it's kind of brought a lot of people together you know I'd say a lot more appreciation for those especially on the front line who are kind of looking after those who are you know unwell etc so I think we're sometimes seeing the best in people when sometimes a challenge comes that brings everyone together for a common purpose so yeah I'd say that.
0: Okay. No, fantastic. Fantastic. I want to uh, just thank everyone for bearing with us whilst we navigated the <laughs> technicalities of Instagram. Uh, but, but, but thank you for making the time and, um, you know, availing yourself to, to the session. It's, um, it's something that um, I started as part of my own evolution of my journaling process. And journaling is the medium I use to reflect on my own spiritual condition, my own mental and emotional state. I found that reflection has been a powerful means for me to sort of identify areas in which uh, I need to improve and work on, uh, but also areas that I can be confident in, in sharing with others. So um, that's what this is. This is our session called uh, Mukunda's Meditations with Friends and this is the second episode with Bhuta Bhavna. So uh, thank you uh, for joining us yet again Um, and and welcome to everyone who's who's viewing from the UK, South Africa and wherever you uh, are across the world. So today's topic is something that has come about from um, my own writings, especially over the last two months, um, especially since the this lockdown commenced, and that's the topic of resilience. And I love the subtitle that um, you've put to it, uh, um, you know, building immunity um, against anxiety and stress. And let me sort of give a. The context and the background as to how this topic came about and the ideas we began to exchange. Um, when the lockdown commenced, one of the things I was experiencing, and, and I think we all experienced was there was a general slowdown uh, of the world in terms of obviously businesses shut down, um, we all stopped going to work, there were no social visits allowed. Um, so the permutations were that we basically had to stay at home um, stay put um, in position and um, we found that basically our physical life our external life slowed down and a week went by and a second week went by um, and despite everything else you know um, having slowed down uh, drastically i found that emotionally and mentally I was still running at the standard city life pace. Um, And that, for me, was was interesting to observe. Um, And when I analyzed it a little bit more, I found that, you know, this this state of internal rush, if I want to put it that way, was as a result of worry. It was as a result of anxiety what does the future hold um what's going to happen after this lockdown is is done and complete um what does this mean for my own uh, spiritual practice is it is it um do i need to really focus on the idea of letting go or understanding what is um not important and what is important in my life. So those were some of the questions that were popping up in my own um, reflection on this period. And so I got in touch with you and I wanted to hear your idea of, of what resilience is under these circumstances. So, yeah, that's, I guess the first question that I, I have for you is what is resilience to you? As a
1: person. Okay. It's a very good question, first of all. And thank you to all of those who've joined um, this discussion. And I think it's a very powerful and very important topic. For the past, I'd say, close to four years, even in my professional um, space, I've been teaching a whole range of different topics around leadership and management. And one of the key, and one of the key topics which has been found to be the most engaging for many people is this topic of, of resilience. So for me, resilience has different dimensions to it. I think, and, and I'll tell you honestly, I had a period where because I'd kind of pushed my body a bit too far, I had a period where I had bad digestion and, you know, tiredness and so on. And I realized that there's there's very much a hierarchy in terms of resilience. So we first of all had the physical aspect, right? So our basic physical well-being and then because there's a natural bleed-on effect, there's a natural link between how someone is physically, but also that then affects how they are mentally, how they are emotionally, and until a certain stage, it also has an effect on how we are spiritually as well. And and when I when I was thinking about this, something that really really came back to me many, many times very strongly, was when my own spiritual teacher, Bhakti Tirtamaj, would quote the Chaitanya Shikshamrita by Bhakti Vinod Thakur. And in that literature, he says, unless you're a Paramahamsa, unless you're a pure, fully self-realized individual, one has to have good care for the body, good stimulation for the mind, a good social situation, and also spiritual knowledge to see how all of them fit together. So for me, that's that was for me my perfect understanding of resilience, making sure that I have physical capacity and not just capacity, but physical sustenance, taking care of myself in terms of the physicality, sleep, et cetera, But I have also certain emotional capacity and sustenance. So good relationships, relationships where one can be, where we can really literally exchange love, you know, pretty lakshin. And we can give and receive, you know, gifts, care, attention, and, and also reveal the mind in a way that could be really both, Honest, but also progressive as well. So I think it's got a physical component, an emotional component, a mental component. Meaning that we're keeping the the intelligence sharp. I know for myself, if I don't keep learning things, I've got that kind of mind. Yeah. If I keep learning, it keeps my intelligence sharp and, and and calm. But if I don't have something to nourish my intelligence, my mind goes a bit like, "What the hell's going on here?" So that's also an aspect. And then, of course. That all culminates in and it 's led by that spiritual component you know for me that the the practice of chanting the names of God that that connected time with krishna in in the form of direct devotional practices for me, those four dimensions all together provide a holistic understanding of what it means to be resilient hmm.
0: it's it's uh, interesting that you've pointed out that. Uh, it's a holistic approach and what you've you've just said that with those four components you know the physical the mental emotional and spiritual that of those four components um, they're all led and I guess subtended by the spiritual aspect and I am all for as as someone who practices bhakti yoga uh, or the you know the process of self-realization through love and devotion. Um, I, I'm someone who's very keen on translating um, spirituality into our practical everyday life. I'm, I'm totally not a person who's about like abstract spirituality, because um, at the end of the day, that means nothing. Um, what we need is 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 practical spiritual tools. So, so what are some of those like tools that that you use um, and what do you mean by uh, when you say that um, those components are led and subtended by your spiritual practice? What, what, are, what are you doing in your everyday life?
1: So there's a few things. I mean, to be honest, I'm finding this period to be an extraordinary time of, of insight and realization. And, and some of the things I'm really seeing are, are moving the Tao in, in the right direction are as follows. So some of the things I practically do. So I'll have like, a, like a, um, a schedule in the day, okay? So scientists have also found that practically when you have a clear understanding of what you're going to be doing on a given day and when those activities are connected or aligned with a longer-term purpose, then every time we move forward in a particular direction, every time we tick something off that list, it actually invokes positive emotions, so going back to these four dimensions, the, um, the sense of emotionality isn't just the exchange between people who are like-minded, who, who get each other, right, who have mutual interest and understanding, but it's also that progressive emotion that's, that's achieved when we move a step closer to, in, and in our case, for example, the, the goals of bhakti yoga. So when we talk about something being very practical, for me, What I'm seeing in my own life is that actually, more and more, the practice of bhakti yoga, the idea of spirituality, it's actually a foundation even for the well-being of the physical self, the well-being mentally, the well-being emotionally, and it leads forward to a greater sense of spiritual nourishment and understanding. So let's give a very simple example. So one of the literatures, well, I'm very much into reading and studying and so on, but like you, which I I very much appreciated. One of the things I see often is a mistake for people who are on a path of of deeper self-development is that there isn't that time to integrate what they've read and heard. Mm. So one of the things I've been doing for decades now, actually, and I got this also from my own mentor was writing. So I would write to my mentor, you know, and and to his mentor and we I'd write not only will I'd hear, let's say in a, in a a spiritual dialogue or class, but I'd also speak about or write about what were my reflections on what I've heard, okay? What do I understand by what I've heard? What was interesting or what resonated? And how would I take that understanding, and to your point, how would I make it real? How would I apply it practically in my day-to-day life? And, And what I found is by doing that, it translated the... the the abstract sometimes into something which was much more applicable and usable. And that for me has been one of the key things that helped me to really keep my intelligence sharper in a spiritual sense, meaning that my intelligence becomes sharper because I'm thinking about wisdom to the extent that it starts to become more and more a part of my day-to-day mode of operation. Another Another thing I've been doing is like, you know, Regular exercise, right? Making sure that the physical health is there, because if although they are all culminating in the higher understanding, if my physical health isn't isn't there, it makes everything else more difficult. You know, so they all have their role to play, but the physical acts as a foundation because it gives us a capacity of energy that we can then use for the for the mental, for the emotional, and for the direct spiritual practices, which help to give peace of mind. And for me, it helps me to feel a sense of clarity, a sense of fulfillment, because I feel like I feel more internally content Mm. and therefore also a sense of connection, not only with the Supreme, but with everyone else that I interact with. That's how I've practically been trying to apply it.
0: That's that's amazing. And the reason I, I say that's amazing is because you've identified something and put it into words are something I've been doing for, for a while, and uh, I've never necessarily attributed words to it, but the power of reflection in resilience. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm someone who's been um, journaling for more than a decade and a half, mm-hmm. almost every single day. And, and literally uh, and I, I'm so happy to to hear, and the connections I'm making with a lot of the um, the friends that I'm interviewing here is uh, we're tied by the common thread of of, of writing down our spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing've I've picked up from from my process of, of journaling and and reflection is that... It's, it's given me the opportunity to, like you say, pause and allow what I am absorbing to sink in.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and when that becomes a, a norm in your life, um, the idea of constant reflection, you begin to apply spiritual principles in everyday life. You make them, as you're saying, real. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was such a fantastic point that that you made the the power of reflection in resilience. Mm-hmm. So so let's take two steps back. Okay, mm-hmm. you you've you sort of like given us um, your your process of resilience. You you sort of defined it as as these four components led by spiritual practice. And of course, encompassing the other aspects, making sure that you have a physical regime, making sure you there's 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 mental health by by keeping sharp and and making sure there's there's emotional health by um having good relationships and so on. so let's take two steps back and and ask ourselves and put ourselves in the shoes of someone who. Um, is yet to learn and pick up some of these tools that you're speaking about. And I want to ask you this question. Why is it that we worry about the future? Um, Why do we have anxiety about um, the time that has yet to come?
1: I think there's a number of reasons and they are different for different people. So the future can mean different things to different people but I think that some of the common reasons why we worry about the future is because we're not so confident about the present. And in many cases we may have had maybe some challenging experiences in the past. So it's interesting. I I was, um, I was reflecting on one leader, very powerful, very strong leader, you know, globally recognized and, um, and admired, and I, I was looking at his attitude to the future, and I was making a comparison. And what I saw was this leader did not have anywhere near the same anxiety about the future that many other people have. And, and I tried to analyze what was it about this person's mentality, history, attitude, etc., that caused them to think about the future in a very different way. And one of the key things as I was reflecting and making that comparison was that this person had a very strong proactive tendency. And I found that to be incredible. And I'll tell you why, because in my decades or so study of leadership and so on, looking at it from a very Eastern tradition, because I'll be honest, I find that in that tradition, there's such extraordinary, potent and profound gems of wisdom, which are also very simple. We sometimes call these sutras, That you have a a short statement, but when you unpack it, it's full of wisdom. And one that I came across many years ago, and this very much relates to your question, was fate follows action. And and, and it, it meant a lot to me because, okay, we could talk about fate meaning the future. Okay, so for most people, we never know fully what the future holds. But what I saw was it an individual or individuals who have that mentality that the future will be largely shaped by my proactive and wise initiative. Those people had a greater locus of control because instead of thinking that the future was something that happened to them, they had the mentality was that the future was something that they design or at least co-create. I was making some notes on this last night, and it's because I just constantly nowadays there's a huge abundance of kind of insights and ideas which keep coming, and I and, and I have I realised that that statement had a, had a, a last section to it. So the statement was fate follows action, but when but then I thought to myself, okay, but what does action follow? Hmm. Okay, so fate or our destiny follows action. That means the way I act is going to determine my future. Okay, but what leads to the way I act? And I came to the conclusion that there are two things which affect my action. Number one is consciousness or attitude, and the second one is wisdom or knowledge. So I, I saw that the beginning of the entire, of the entire chain, the, the drivers was the attitude. So there's an, an emotional aspect and the quality of the knowledge that I'm applying, which is like a, an intellectual, or for us we'd say, a spiritually informed aspect. When these two things come together, and, and they inform my action, then the action will inform my destiny. And it really struck me. And I started to to review periods in my own life where I had been proactive, but not just proactive, because many people are proactive. Many people are recklessly proactive but i saw that the real powerful thing was being proactive on the basis of knowledge good knowledge good insight and along with that having the right attitude because i can even be i can i can have good knowledge but a reckless attitude and that will still lead to a bad outcome in, in the long term mm. so that's what i saw and i saw that that meant that i had the ability to literally focus on what i can't control or I could focus on what is within my power. You know, and this is, this really made a big difference to me. And I think that's, that's the secret behind it. Many people are therefore afraid of the future because they do not fully embrace their power to shape it. And they do not also fully embrace their connections with those people who can help them to make the decisions, which will be wise now and which will therefore play out as positive outcomes in the future,
0: mm. Mm. that's so uh, powerful. The um, idea of, and you mentioned it right at the end, is you know we have like this, this, this um, I guess an artificial uh, sense of of thinking that we have control over so many aspects of uh, material existence that are really outside of our control. Too. And that, that propensity to, to keep on driving the idea or the attitude that I can control this, I can control this person, I can control this set of events, I can control this outcome, uh, is is leads one to the state of anxiety because there's a realization that dawns upon you that actually I'm not in control of these things.
1: It's unrealistic. So, it's completely unrealistic. Yeah.
0: So... You know, you also mentioned something that, that was so pivotal, I thought. And, and this is part of why I just, I love picking your brain. Um, you said part of the reason why we feel so unsettled about the future is because we're unsettled within the present moment.
1: Absolutely.
0: So how how do we become more mindful of Our present state of being and how do we come do we become more content in the present
1: it's a really good question I think that there are a few drivers and I think that one of the things that we have to be very honest about is that this that that journey that evolution of being more content in the in the present moment it's not something that happens overnight right it's something that we have to it's an art and it's a, it's a journey that we have to actually work on. We have to craft and, and construct our, our inner contentment. And I think that the real thing that happens if people are being honest with themselves is that, to your point, we spend so much time and energy trying to control things externally. But what I've seen in my own life is that if we, if we took even a fraction of that time and energy and we really focused in on ourselves then we could actually raise our own level of conscious and consciousness and conscious awareness. And for me, what I've seen in my own journey is it is tremendously powerful. You see, the thing is, there's two sides. One is that, yes, there are some variables that we can try to control, okay? But those variables lie very much within our own behaviors. So there is a locus of control. Otherwise, we wouldn't have free will. Free will means... That you have the ability to make choices, to make decisions, and to not just be on the, to not just be on what I call the victim spectrum. The victim spectrum is that life is happening to me, destiny is happening to me. Okay, definitely there'll be some things which come into our life space that we can't fully control. But if I work on myself and my consciousness, both in terms of elevating my understanding and making healthy choices about who I associate with, and how I do that, I can still do a tremendous amount to move into that space of contentment. I was, um, I was pulling together some notes for a seminar and, and it's interesting. I, I woke up that morning. So I was thinking about it the night before. I woke up in the morning and I had some really powerful ideas, which very much related to this. And I was imagining explaining in a seminar that the way that the way that consumerism works. Right, because now we have this ecological crisis and so many things and people are very concerned. And what I was saying is that, that oftentimes people are just being told we're going to have to reduce our consumption. And I had serious doubts about whether that's going to work by, as a singular message. And the reason why I had, that, had doubts is it it triggered something in me. I thought to myself, no, we as a humanity we're making the same mistake again. What is that mistake? We're dealing with things on a superficial level without looking at the underlying cause. So when people are are heavily into consumption, whether it's binging on movies or Netflix, whether it's binging on food, the question is, why are they doing it? Mm. People can just say it's good, it's bad. But the question is, why are people doing it? And back to your point, it's about the need for contentment. Mm. And so the solution is, that we need to have a practice, behaviors, lifestyles that generate such a deep quality of contentment inside that they automatically have an effect upon regulating our external patterns of consumerism, right? Because otherwise, if you just tell people stop doing things, but they don't feel fulfilled, then it creates a real problem. Some people repress that feeling. Some people, they'll repress it for a while, but it'll come up in, in some other negative ways. Some people, they'll just find ways to get around the rules. That happens in every sphere of life. So the key thing is a need for that contentment. For me, I found that there were key sources. Again, going back to a regular spiritual practice for, for about 30 years, even before I got into bhakti yoga, I was engaged in meditation. And it, I can't even lie to you, it, it, it gave me a profound sense of peace a profound sense of peace and it really toned down what we call emotional reactivity. So we weren't, we weren't forced to react so easily or so negatively to the things that other people would easily be disturbed by. So I think one aspect is a spiritual practice with, with regularity, not just something that you do every now and then, but something that comes with regularity. And along with that, two other things. One is cultivating wisdom because although we can't control everything that happens to us if i live my life in cultivation of wisdom real wisdom the kind of wisdom that we get from books such as the bhagavad-gita then what it does is when those challenging experiences do come i already have a map i already have a map that's in my mind as to how i navigate those uncertainties so it's for me it's a direct and consistent spiritual practice, one, the cultivation of wisdom, so I know how to deal with the challenges as they come to me, and three, and these, this is all also important, the association of other people who are also cultivating that same type of, of wisdom and spiritual pursuit. And th- And the reason for that is because when I forget or when I slip, they remind me, no, remember this is how... We can see this. this. They remind me about how to see and how to process those different situations and challenges in a way that's in accordance with higher understanding, mm. right? Because all of us, we have an intellectual, we have an emotional side too, and and it's easy to know one thing, but when push comes to shove, when we're in the heat of the of the issue or the challenge, it's easy to forget what we really know and react in on on the basis of a of a sentiment of a feeling of an impulse and that can lead to very serious difficulties later on so again it comes back to the same thing those three elements for me helped me to get a sense of emotional contentment wisdom and a sense of inner fulfillment which meant that i can literally carry that to whatever situation that i'm in and deal with those situations in a more optimal way
0: jeez Um... I've just finished an article that um, I was writing for a local publication uh, that we have in South Africa, and it was it's entitled uh, "A Stranger to Myself," and it it was on this very topic that we're speaking about. One thing that this uh, lockdown period has brought out. Very um, starkly um, to us is that we've become so disconnected with ourselves, um, yes. we've become strangers to ourselves uh, to, to ourselves, basically. And now that we're confronted with a situation where we are forced to look at ourselves more closely by the physical uh, circumstances we find that um it's it's a scary picture to look at in some in some instances and and in other instances there's what do i look at how do i i look at this and you know these questions on the self um these spiritual questions about contentment as you've raised are are questions that are asked in many uh, Vedic texts and Ve- many Vedic literatures, and you and I are, are like you—you've you've pointed out you're, you're a person who loves reading, and uh, I'm a I'm a lover of books in general, and particularly books on on Bhakti Yoga, and uh, many of my friends who are here on this call will know that um, I constantly uh, speak about uh, Bhagavatam. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I ask everyone this question. So uh, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, For those who don't know Bhagavatam, for those who are joining us for the first time, Bhagavatam is, this is a copy of one of the volumes. It's a 12-volume book of this ancient wisdom of Bhakti Yoga, the science of self-realization. And it's filled with many beautiful devotional stories and pastimes that speak about uh, these different personalities and their own individual journeys towards self-realization and connecti- connection with the Supreme. And I found a lot of solace in reflecting on the lives of these persons within this book, Bhagavatam. Um, I found a lot of um, um, good cautionary tales as well about how to operate within, within this world. I wanna ask you, um, and this is the Bhagavatam section of, of our discussion, what's your favorite Bhagavatam pastime and why? How has it affected you as a person and affected your life?
1: Thank you for that question. And I, I again I really love discussing these very deep literatures of, of which are packed full of incredible insights. I mean, for me, one of the one of the one of the groundbreaking experiences in terms of insights from the Bhagavatam the book that you mentioned was when I heard about what they call um, the pastime of Gajendra. And this one is, is completely relevant. I mean, this was for me, it really, it changed my life. I, I can say that honestly. It, and, it, and, it, and it changed my life on many different levels and gave me a very clear, very clear formula or insight into my own self, and also I could then take that same formula and consider where people are, why they were either succeeding in life, they were thriving, or they were going down. And so what happened in this particular pastime called Gajendra Moksha, you had you know, a pastime where there was an elephant, and he was actually fighting in the water with a, a crocodile. And what was really interesting about the pastime was because as in the narrative it was explained that the elephant was far stronger than the crocodile. Far stronger. But he was losing the battle. And what was so what left such a deep impact in my heart was the explanation as to why. And in the Bhagavatam, in that eighth canto. It was explained that although the elephant was stronger than the crocodile, the elephant was badly positioned. okay so the elephant was in the water and therefore it was explained that the elephant wasn't getting any physical and str- um, physical nourishment, any emotional mental nourishment, etc. so he was he was a stronger creature, but his strength was going down. Then you had the opposite: the crocodile in the water was a weaker creature than the elephant, but because the crocodile was in its natural environment, as weak as it was relative to the elephant, its strength was going up. And what that taught me was that for all of us, we're not just a product of of our capabilities. People get that wrong. And there's a lot that goes on in the self-help industry where people talk about their strengths and capabilities. But it brought out another point. And this is a similar point that's brought out in the Bhagavad Gita as well. And that is that people are at their best when the character or nature of the person is aligned with a supportive environment, you know? And and I saw that. So it it gave me a dynamic model of potential. So potential isn't just the capability someone has, but it's whatever they have plus whether that orientation or that capability is increasing because the environment is supporting it or whether it's decreasing because the environment is draining the particular individual. Now for that, that understanding, we could use environment as a metaphor. It could be your, your association, the circle of people you're hanging around. So you're a very good person, but everyone who's around you is negative. So they're draining your batteries. It could be that the environment is your, you're badly situated in terms of your health. It it could be environment means you're badly situated in terms of the the kind of work that you're doing. But it it gave me a very dynamic model because what what I took from it is that the individual plus the effect of the environment equals their behavior and potential. And that, for me, it really said something. And what it taught me is that I, I realized before, okay, I get it now. That means... But if I want to be of service to humanity and also to, to raise myself in, in, in bhakti yoga as much as possible, because it's not always, you know, nothing's black and white. It's not that you can always fully control the environment. But to the extent that I can, I should try to situate and arrange the elements of my life in such a way that they're supportive of my own progress. And journey in terms of spiritual consciousness but even that they they provide what, what I need on the again on the physical on the emotional and on the mental levels and and I saw that and when I saw that I started to look at people I knew and to be honest with you it was like it was like it was like I'd seen it was like I saw something completely different to what I'd seen before because now it's almost like you had a lens you had like a lens of wisdom And you're looking at people that you saw before and i can see oh i get it now this person was strong but their energy and their strength is going down because the environment is sapping their strength this person they weren't so strong but because now they're in a good situation the environment is actually making them stronger and sharper and wiser and more encouraged and it was incredible It, it, it was literally like a formula for success and the and the great thing about it was that the formula wasn't just the individual. It was the individual and the context that they were in. And I realized again and again in my own life and in the life of other people, up until a certain level of consciousness, up until a certain level of consciousness, we are seriously affected by the environment. And people say, well, I had a bad environment, but I still became successful. That's true. And that does happen. But just imagine if they were in a good environment and they they were working just as hard. If you if you work hard, and you're in a supportive environment, then instead of working hard to counteract the environment, you're working hard and you're getting the support of the environment. You can become successful and progress, especially in Bhakti Yoga, that much faster.
0: Hmm. There's a question here that um, I think would be cool to tackle um, how do you balance avoiding negative people or people who lower your energy and strength while also practicing being non-judgmental of others
1: okay I love that question and also just a shout out to Ronak I'm really glad that you shared that question because I think that's something that came up before and I wanted to answer that so we were on a zoom call at some point in the past and that question came up which I think is a very good question now my first thing is it depends on what you mean by being nonjudgmental, right? So let's be very clear. So there's sometimes this idea that we shouldn't judge, right? But it depends on what you mean. So for example, people may say um, it's wrong to judge others, right? So judging others is wrong, but that's a judgment, right? That's saying that judging other people is wrong, not judging other people is right. So we're always involved in evaluation. What we should be doing is we should be evaluating for the right purpose. And and the example, when I first thought about that, the example is just like you have a child, right? So let's say you have a child, and you know that some of the children in the playground are really negative, badly behaved, and they will actually even harm that child or they'll mislead that child. Now every good parent's gonna tell their child, be careful in this area. Mm. Every good parent. Now that doesn't mean that they hate the people who are bad. But it means that they're not in denial about the reality. I, I, was, I was exploring certain things about my own consciousness and about my own karma. And I'll just share because I feel like it's, it's always these opportunities are always an opportunity to really talk about grassroots wisdom and make it practical. One of the things I saw in my own karmic patterns, I was creating some exercises around how to explore your karmic patterns and trends and I saw that in my own life, whenever I'd been just completely honest about the reality, right? Not, not in denial, not sentimental, not pretending that it's better than it was, then I could deal with things really well, right? And it doesn't mean that you have to reject people, but it means you can upgrade others. So it's like a doctor. A doctor, so if I say being nonjudgmental, it's like a doctor who does not diagnose the disease, the, the disease, right? You know, the person's got cancer, you know the person has got cancer, but you don't want to be judgmental. I, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say that. No, but you should be judgmental. We say, look, let's be honest. This is cancer, right? Because that's just the beginning of the journey, right? If I'm, if I'm evaluating properly and I'm compassionate, then with these two things together, I'll take things to a positive conclusion. But, and this, is, this was also something that was interesting for me, i saw in my own life that some of the most bitter and resentful people were those who had been in denial and been naive because what happened was first they were in denial and naive and because of that they allowed themselves to be mistreated hurt manipulated and then they became the most bitter people so w- when i thought about it all I realized that Bhagavad Gita and, and the teachings of Bhagavad Gita were really on point, And that is truthfulness. So truthfulness means just what is the reality, right? Let's not be in denial. Let's not be about the bush. Let's not pretend. So if someone's stealing from you, we don't pretend that they're not stealing. We don't say, oh, we're not judgmental. It's like, no, they are stealing. Now that doesn't mean we hate the person, but now that we understand the reality, now that we can deal with that reality, in the correct way so if someone is self-centered don't let's not pretend that they're selfless let's understand okay this is how they are it's not good right and we don't hate them for it because we recognize it's a conditioning that they have but if I don't understand the starting point I'm in trouble I it was interesting one of the um, great teachers of bhakti yoga he said we love we love the we love the good person right? the, the the humble sage we also love the lion, but we do not go near the lion or put our head in the lion's mouth, right? That, for me, is what it means to be judgmental in a healthy way. I recognize the reality of the situation, and then having recognized the actual truth, mm. I can deal with those situations in, for a compassionate outcome. Yeah. That, that, that really, for me, is the essence of it all.
0: Fantastic. I I really love what you've just um, shared with us. And I just want to, you know, share with, with everyone who's, who's watching is this is the, the power of the wisdom contained in, in spiritual literature. Um, So often we, we think of reading and and engaging actively with 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 spiritual literature as like some sort of dry philosophical and mechanical thing, but it's it's a living thing, it's very dynamic, and it has such positive impact in our life as has been shared and exhibited by by what Bhut Bhavna' has just shared with us. and you know, in this this question uh, at this point, there's another question that I, I have for you. Is, is, you know, we often think of resilience and, and the word itself has a co- connotation of, I'm an engineer, so um, we, when we speak of something that's resilient, you know, it's mm. sturdy it's and it's firm, like concrete, mm. you know? So, so often the word is associated with, with, with this, um, with this uh, staunchness and, and sturdiness and, and maybe even stiffness. So how do we reconcile that with vulnerability because there's a there's a quote by by um one of my favorite poets that's that's popping up in my head right now and you're speaking about um a person's potential being matched with their environment he says that um to love uh, at all is to be vulnerable so we can't really grow in love we can't grow ourselves, we can't uh, love ourselves and let alone love others if there isn't a sense of vulnerability because vulnerability exposes our truest nature. Okay. Yeah. And when we look at our environment and in, in particular when I'm speaking about environment in this sense, looking at our relationships, Okay, how do we um, become Vulnerable within resilience. Beautiful question. It's sort of like a, a strange dichotomy, but, but, but I think it's important because those relationships in our time of need, we need people around us when we're not strong to be strong for us. So how Beautiful do we become vulnerable within resilience?
1: So again, thank you for such an incredible question. So in the beginning of this year, before obviously the whole coronavirus thing began, so this was in January, we were visiting a very beautiful place. It's an eco-village in India, in Mumbai, called the Govardhan Eco-Village. And we got to speak to one of the, or the, the, the leader who inspired the entire project. His name is Radhanath Swami. And um, in our group, one of the ladies in our group, because there's a whole group of us from all over the world, she asked him a question and she said that she said marge you know radhana swami you know how do i understand the difference between being compassionate and being sentimental and he said something which very much relates to what you're saying he said that real compassion is based upon and the sanskrit word is Vikshapa, which means um discrimination or wisdom judgment and so he went on to touch upon this and it very much relates to what you're you're saying about resilience and about vulnerability. Yes, every single one of us, if we're going to be actually resilient to the, to the, to the greatest capacity that we can, we have to let people in. We have to be open hearted. We have to be vulnerable, but that's part of the equation. That's, that's, that's the reality. And it's a fact when people feel interconnected with other people, then actually the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. So what happens is I have my own level of resilience. This other person has their own level of resilience. But when we help each other, then there's my resilience, their resilience, plus what comes through the relationship. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. But, and and I've had this discussion with many people, the last step, and this is often forgotten by many people, especially on the spiritual path, is this wisdom to evaluate who to be vulnerable with. Mm. You see? So, again, back to this analogy I have resilience, they have resilience. Then there's the connection between the two. That connection is not necessarily always positive. If I'm vulnerable, with someone who's also well-intentioned and good-natured, then the relationship between the two is progressive for everyone. Okay? So it's like one plus one plus a relationship is more than three. But the opposite is also true. If I'm vulnerable with someone who is negative or takes advantage of that, then through the relationship, whatever vulnerability I have actually now starts to go down. So one of the things that, the, let's be very clear, one of the things that makes many people in the world, historically, especially practical-minded people, one of, the thing that call, one of the things that calls them to question the spiritual path or to question whether the spiritual path is realistic is because they've not seen examples of or they've not been taught to apply spirituality in a practical way and discerning way and and there are many people who are now in the world they're bitter they're negative they're resentful because they tried to be spiritual but they didn't do it in in a way which was also wise so it's, it's really important that spiritual people show how to not just be spiritual but to be spiritual in a wise way and actually the two things are naturally together So for me, it's yes, be vulnerable, but be be vulnerable to people who are mature, wise, and who are well-intentioned towards you. Hmm. Because unfortunately, there are many people, we have to, again, back to this point about being real, being realistic and having our feel on the ground. There are many people who, for whatever reason, when they come across people who are open-hearted, well-intentioned, and vulnerable, if we're not careful, they will take advantage of that good intention. And what it does is it sends a message into society to say that by being vulnerable and by being white and and by being good, that's not realistic. And then the the greater number of people seeing that bad example, seeing someone who's vulnerable, who was cheated, who was exploited, they think, you know what? The conclusion is, don't be vulnerable, don't be spiritual. But that's wrong. The conclusion is, Be vulnerable in a wise and spiritually progressive way. That's the solution. That's the real solution.
0: And that's why I love speaking to you. And that's why I love hearing from you. Um, Be vulnerable in a wise way. Uh, Look, I want to thank you for, again, uh, giving us the time and just allowing us to explore this topic there's so much to it that I wish um, we could, you know, go on for for more time. And when I do meet up with you in person, I'd, I'd love to have more hot hot sessions about Gita and so many other spiritual topics. Because um, speaking with you, being vulnerable with with uh, with <laughs> with persons such as yourself, I think is so important for one's own spiritual upliftment Um, I I want to share a few things before we wrap this up um, with everyone so next week we're going to have another session of Mukunda's Meditations with Friends and again I am doing this because I'm trying to better my own self, I'm trying to learn from um, people like Bhuta Bhavna like Achuta Gopi last week uh, and I'm trying to do that by sharing it with, with our community. So um, I've, I've spoken to, to several people, and uh, we're going to speak about another uh, meditation that I've been looking at, and that's the that's the question of authenticity along our spiritual journey. And I'm going to be tackling and looking at that question of authenticity along our spiritual journey with the author of this book over here, Five Years, Eleven Months, uh, an unexpected or a lifetime of unexpected love. So I'm going to be speaking on Mukunda's meditations with friends with um, Mother Vishaka. Um, She's recently taken up the helm at the Bhaktivedanta Manor, And she, Five Years, Eleven Months is honestly one of the most beautiful memoirs I have spiritual memoirs that I've ever read. And um, reading it over the last uh, two days again, just recapping has been fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to that. Authenticity along our spiritual journey, looking at uh, the life of someone who's been super authentic through her memoir as well. So please join us for that. That'll be next week, Saturday. And again, friends, you know, there's always stream at Bhavutam, we can delve into. Um, so these sessions are, again, about just making our literatures um, more available and accessible to so many people out there. So dive into to the literatures as much as you can. This recording will be on um, Instagram Live. Um, so I think on your side... Um, Bhavna Prabhu, I think you just need to save uh, the video and upload it onto IG Live and I'll share that. And and I've also, because I've received numerous requests for uh, last week's session, that'll be uploaded onto IG Live, but we're also making them available uh, as podcasts. So um, this recording, along with last week's recordings, and and all future recordings will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify soon. So um, do look out for that. We'll we'll let everyone know um, how to get access to that as soon as that's available. Um, Yeah, I wish we had more time.
1: Yeah, another time. We'll come on again.
0: Yeah, you have to come on again. I absolutely love speaking to you. You're honestly one of the most um, practical spiritualists that um, I have encountered in, in my own um, in my own life and that's why you know when this topic came up I was like there's only one person I can speak about with this and that's you
1: Very kind of you to say so and um, yeah it's, it's been a really fascinating wonderful discussion. I always love speaking to yourself and and so many others who are very deep and also very sincere but also very wise and I think that's what we need in modern society the coming together of all of these different different ingredients to make it spirituality to bring out the real quality of it the, the joyfulness the wisdom the dynamism and the practicality as, as we hopefully trying to do today thank you so much
0: thank you and i'm thank just gonna you. make a little thank
1: plug you. i'm just gonna make a little plug we'll be doing more of these hopefully in the future with and others so feel free to follow us on instagram etc yes
0: um edinoba at edinoba please follow and um if you haven't followed me as well uh, at underscore mukundangri and we'll be doing more mukunda's uh, meditations with friends and um, i'm sure bhuta Bhavna Prabhu his content is always you know amazing so please do follow him
1: just learning just learning learning.
0: (laughs) thank (laughs) you so much thank you to everyone thank you and um yeah we'll catch up soon
1: take care thank you
0: By